Welcome to Bitcoin Sermons, the podcast that preaches how Bitcoin is connected to the coming of Jesus. It's a fascinating topic, and I think it's like the elephant in the room that not many are really talking about, even though it's so obvious. Well, whether you're a Bitcoiner or a Christian or both, this podcast has something for you. I am excited to study a subject with you today that I think will dispel some myths and set a different tone for how we view the financial system, or better said, how we view money in general. Now, one of the challenges that I face in this podcast, and which quite frankly I had to face in my own heart before I ever started this podcast, is how can I reconcile my interest and devotion to Bitcoin with the Bible verse that says the love of money is the root of all evil. As Christians, or as anyone who is in any way influenced by this idea that money is evil, we have this tendency to want to shun money or the appearance of money or in some way cover over it, while at the same time we all use and rely on money for our day-to-day lives and openly or secretly we always want more of it. And so let's explore that. I talked about this particular verse in a previous episode, but in light of the topic today, it bears repeating just so that we have everything together here in context. Essentially, what I explained in that previous episode is, first of all, that the verse is clear that it's not money itself that is evil. Money, after all, is simply a tool. It's a means to an end. It's a way of accounting. And let's just read that to be absolutely clear. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. And just to have the context, this is speaking about people who had become rich in the church and that we should be content with food and clothing and the basic necessities together with godliness, that is to say, good character. This was stated in order to refute the prevailing belief mentioned in verse 5 that gain is godliness. In other words, that the wealthy are more righteous, that they are in some way better. And that is flatly refuted here. Quite to the contrary, verse 10 explains that while some coveted after money, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Or in other words, they've fallen on their own sword or committed suicide by coveting after money. So that's not to say that money or wealth is evil in and of itself, 
but that this covetousness, this love of money, is the problem, and specifically that's stated in the context of those that supposed gain is godliness. Now, in my previous episode where I talked about this, I explained how this applies particularly to the fiat financial system as opposed to Bitcoin. And the reason is because that the fiat financial system is a system that incentivizes and helps those who covet after money. And as a result, the more money one has, the more power they have to continue to gain money. And that gives an unfair advantage to those who have wealth against those who do not. And that's why politicians, statesmen, or company leaders, bank executives, people who have a lot of wealth and who have become rich through their climbing the corporate ladder are especially the ones addressed here. And by the way, this idea that supposing gain as godliness is not just a problem that they had at that time. This is something that is pervasive even today. And there's no clearer example of that than among those who support the idea that Jews are in some way superior because of their intelligence and their savvy ability to make money which of course is a stereotype and does not describe every individual. But that idea and the fact that it is propagated and believed by many is evidence that we have this same problem today of supposing that gain is godliness. And there is a great error among Christians today who support Israel, the modern nation of Israel, which has virtually nothing to do with the biblical Israel and was founded by the United Nations by a body of human beings on grounds that have nothing to do with God's original covenant to ancient Israel. It's a completely man-made system, man-made nation that exists today. But yet many Christians support Israel under the mistaken idea that they are still somehow God's chosen people or that they still possess a residual blessing from God despite the fact that they severed their covenant with God by condemning Jesus Christ and delivering him to be killed. Just to make that point exceptionally clear, Jesus Christ in giving his life, fulfilled his obligation under the covenant. He gave all that he promised, and there's nothing left for him to give. That means the covenant with ancient Israel is over and has been over since the death of Jesus Christ. When you study covenants and their origin, one of the things you discover is that just like in the description of God's covenant with Abraham, an animal was cut in half, laid in two parts, and the parties to the covenant would walk around the sacrifice and between the two parts, and they would vow something like, if I do not fulfill my covenant, then let me be like this animal. 
And in that way, they would pledge their life, their resources, all that they had to give to the fulfillment of that covenant, which is to say that if the other party had claimed that the covenant was not fulfilled, ultimately it was the life of the opposite party that was the pledge for the fulfillment of that covenant. In other words, there is no more that you can demand from the other side of a covenant other than the life of that party themselves. There's nothing more you can demand from somebody than their life and all that it encompasses, all their strength and efforts and ability and everything they can accomplish in their life. There's nothing more they can give. And therefore, the life is the ultimate promise, the ultimate security for a covenant. That's what a blood covenant is. And Jesus, as the Son of God, when he had done everything possible through history, through the prophets, to redeem Israel, he ultimately gave to the very last extent of his ability. He gave himself, his own life. There is nothing more that God could have given. Therefore, there is nothing more that Israel can claim from the blessing of the covenant than what God had given up to the time of Christ. From that point forward, the blessings of the covenant come through Christianity. And unless a Jew converts to Christianity, he has no further blessing under the covenant. I hope that is clear. And furthermore, if you look at the nation of Israel as a secular nation through an objective lens, you'll see that Israel is one of the gayest and most corrupt nations in all the world. They blatantly disregard the word of God that states that cross-dressing and the practice of homosexuality are an abomination to God. Beyond that, in the times of COVID, we saw that Israel was one of the fastest nations to vaccinate its people, destroying the genetic identity that was handed down from God. So ask yourself, if it wasn't enough to kill the Son of God, to separate Israel from the covenant, they continue to practice abomination to God and they destroy their own genetic identity through DNA, mRNA vaccination. If there was any doubt as to whether they were the true lineage of the children of Israel before, one thing is sure, they aren't anymore. So no matter how you look at it, the nation of Israel today has no part in God's covenant with mankind. Salvation comes only through Jesus Christ and because he fulfilled the covenant through his death on the cross. And the proof of that is that he was resurrected as a man, which is to say he received the blessing, the ultimate promise of the covenant, which is eternal life. He received that just as everyone else who believes in him will also receive that by virtue of their own part in the covenant if they 
abide by the conditions of the covenant as Israel did not. And that addresses another misconception that is common among Christians, which is that there is no obligation toward man under the covenant, and that all that is necessary is belief in Jesus Christ. That is an extension of the ancient situation that was prevalent just after the time of Christ because of God's severance of the covenant with ancient Israel through his fulfillment of it. They failed to meet their obligation, which was to trust, which was to have faith like Abraham, which would be demonstrated by belief in Jesus Christ. But since the Jews rejected Jesus Christ, they proved that they did not keep their part of the covenant, which was to have faith. And therefore, it was correctly understood that the Jews and their entire system of law had been made obsolete, and there was no further obligation to keep those Jewish traditions and those Jewish laws. The obligation was what it always was, as it was expressed so well in the time of Abraham. The obligation on the part of man is to have faith and obey what God says, doing so as a result of that faith. That's all that is necessary, but it does include action. It does include following God and being obedient to his word. And so it's important to understand today where that misconception came from. And that's spoken about quite extensively in the New Testament, especially in the letters of Paul, who was the apostle to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews, And he made it exceptionally clear that the Jewish traditions and laws were not binding on Christians. But the faith of Abraham and his obedience to the word of God is still an example for Christians and always will be. So we today do have obligations under the covenant. And our obligation is what it was always, faith and obedience through that faith or because of that faith. Okay, so these are topics that are important, and it's important to have those things clear as we go into this topic of today. And let's just come back to this verse of 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10. For the love of money is the root of all evil. And this is describing the fiat financial system, or we could say the Jewish financial system, to the extent that It is well known that many Jews have an important role in the fiat financial system, the traditional banking system. Essentially, and this is described in the Bible, essentially the Jews preferred money over Christ. That's the essence of Judas's betrayal. And that's the political reality of his condemnation by the Jewish leaders. They preferred the benefit of the state, even as expressed by the high priest, that it is essential for one man to die for the nation. They essentially understood it was their objective to sacrifice Christ in order to maintain their political standing, their favor in this world. That is the love of money that is the root of all evil. And that is at the heart of the fiat financial system to this day. Those who have wealth in the fiat system 
are able to use that wealth through the political system, through the legal system, through influence, through lobbying, through the banking system, to be able to maneuver in such a way as to gain more wealth from the wealth that they already have. You've heard the saying, it takes money to make money. Well, that's not the principle that Jesus taught. That's the principle of the fiat financial system. The more money you have, the more money you can make. By contrast, what Jesus taught was that a seed, when it is planted in fertile ground, will bring forth fruit, depending on the conditions, maybe 30-fold, maybe 60-fold, maybe 100-fold. But there's no distinction in regards to how many seeds you plant. The return on investment, percentage-wise, is the same. It's an equal opportunity system. You can start with one seed and still make a 100% gain in the system of Jesus Christ. And no matter how many seeds you have, you can still plant them and make a 100% the same 100% gain. There's no difference between the poor and the rich, the one with one seed or the one with a lot of seed. Of course, the one with a lot of seed can do more, but only in proportion. The problem with the fiat financial system and this mindset of it takes money to make money is the fact that the more money you have, the more money you can make, not just in a proportional sense, but in a disproportional sense. And that is by changing laws to make it more favorable for your business than for your competitors, more favorable for the wealthy than for the poor, more favorable for the philanthropists, the wealthy philanthropists like Bill Gates and these types, than for ordinary businesses. And ultimately, this manifests in the most pernicious way through the printing of money in order to inflate the money supply and then subsequently tighten down and let that money that was fabricated flow through specific designated channels designated by laws that were passed by politicians who were bought by corporations who have a lot of money. And so those wealthy entities ultimately cycle the money back into their own pockets at the disadvantage of the ordinary person. This is covetousness in action. This is the love of money, which is the root of all evil. Evil simply meaning bad. All the bad things in this world, the crime, the war, the violence, the corruption, all these things have at their root the love of money or the covetousness of money or the money printing that funnels money into the channels that the wealthy decide in their own interests. Bitcoin is different because of its hard cap, because it is not inflationary. From the outset, it disallows covetousness. It disallows taking money from others partly through being non-inflationary, and partly through its system of private keys. Self-sovereignty, which is enabled by Bitcoin, puts a stop to covetousness. Now, that doesn't mean in the heart people cannot be covetous, 
But under the law of the financial system of Bitcoin, it is not possible to act out that covetousness. The worst that the covetous can do is try to scam other parties out of their money. That's the worst they can do. And the remedy for that is be vigilant, be wise, which everyone naturally is incentivized to do because nobody wants to be stolen from. By contrast, the fiat financial system intrinsically allows the powerful to steal from the weak, whether that's through inflation or taxation. But it is something that's done by force, either the force of the state in the case of taxation or the force of the financial policymakers in the form of in, in the case of inflation. Either way, it is done by force in a way that the citizen cannot resist, does not have the strength, the power to resist. And that is the definition of violence taking by force. Bitcoin changes that. And therefore, to love Bitcoin is not to love money in the covetousness sense, but to love self-sovereignty. That's what loving Bitcoin is. It is loving freedom. It is loving justice in the financial system. And that is something altogether different than what this verse is describing when it says that the love of money is the root of all evil, which, while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Verse 11, But thou, O man, flee these things, these things of, uh, concerning covetousness, the love of money, the fiat financial system. Flee these things and follow after righteousness, that is to say, justice, that is to say, what Bitcoin brings. Follow after righteousness, godliness, which this podcast is showing has a lot to do with Bitcoin. Follow after righteousness, godliness, faith. We talked about faith, obedience to the word of God through faith. Follow after love, patience, meekness. These are the good qualities that Bitcoin encourages. Many say Bitcoin is love. Many say hodl, that's patience. Many say Bitcoin is peace or the solution to war. That's meekness peaceful protest. Okay, so I think we've covered those verses now, and it's important that we did so as we go into today's topic, because what we are going to delve into is the subject of money. And it's important to understand from the outset that money is not evil in and of itself. And we're going to look at the roots of this. Now, one of the problems I have in talking about Bitcoin with other people, not even necessarily in a Christian context, but it comes especially when I'm talking to Christians because of this mindset that money is somehow evil and that anytime you talk about money or how to gain money or the importance of money or sound money, it sounds to Christians like, oh, this is somebody that loves money, and that's evil. And that is not the case. It's about the following verse, the fleeing of the system that's based on covetousness and the following after righteousness or justice in the monetary system. 
And so with this wrong mindset, Christians in particular are quick to dismiss any serious discussion revolving around money. In that vein, someone said to me, well, God didn't create money. And to this, I had to offer a correction. Did you know that God actually did create money? And I'm not talking about the fact that gold, for example, is an element, part of this material world, which God created. No, no, no. God actually instituted the first monetary system in this world. And the circumstances surrounding that are very interesting. And that is the topic that I want to get into in this episode. But this person who was arguing that God didn't create money was also suggesting that we don't need money and that we should just be able to operate in the same way that families operate, where everyone just pitches in and helps with whatever needs to be done. And there's no accounting between people. There's no need for money to be exchanged between members of a family. And so in the ideal case, we don't need money. Now, that is actually true in a certain sense. And one could think in heaven, for example, where we are one big happy family, we won't need money. Now, I'm not entirely sure if that holds, but in a certain sort of way, it makes sense. If time and resources are infinite, then a person doesn't have to keep track. The reason we need money is to do a certain kind of accounting between people that we don't necessarily trust as family members, or we may trust, but we don't have enough business with to be able to ensure that the other person is actually contributing back to society in proportion to the things that are being given them. In other words, money is an accounting system. When person A gives a dollar to person B, and person B gives a dollar to person C, and person C gives a dollar to back to person A, that's a circular economy. And that works because it all balances out. And that's kind of how a family works together. It all balances out. But in a society, in a large society, there needs to be money as this accounting system in order to ensure that everything is balancing out in a world where people aren't perfect, frankly. But the theory is that if the world were perfect, if human nature were perfect, then this accounting system, this money that we trade through society, would not be necessary. So let's see what the Bible has to say about this subject. And I think this is fascinating. So let's go to the beginning, to the book of Genesis. And you know the story. God created the world. He made a garden, and he placed Adam and Eve in this garden. And everything was perfect until Adam and Eve sinned. And then a change took place. The world was cursed. The first change that took place was that Adam and Eve lost their clothing of righteousness, their robe of light. Now, God's response to that is very interesting. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 21, it says, Unto Adam 
also, and to his wife, did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothed them. Now, I posit to you today that this was the first financial transaction. The first financial transaction in this world. Adam and Eve had a need. They needed clothing. The problem is they didn't have any way to make adequate clothing. They tried to do something with the fig leaves, but that obviously didn't work because they were still naked and had to hide themselves. So apparently it wasn't sufficient. And the Lord basically said to them, no, 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 that's not going to do. We've got to make you some real clothing, something that will really cover your nakedness. And to do that, we need something more than just leaves. We need something a little more expensive. And that's going to cost the life of an animal. Now, every Christian understands that the sacrifice of an animal was a foreshadowing of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ to pay for the sins of mankind. That's all encompassed here in this story of God making coats of skins for Adam and Eve. Now, there are several important lessons here. First of all, there's kind of a contrast of two different financial systems. There's, on the one hand, you could use leaves to pay for your clothing. Leaves are everywhere. Some are bigger than others. But not only do they not work, I mean, it's kind of like really cheap clothing, right? And it comes pretty much at a very low cost. You can pretty much make as many leaves as you want at no cost. That's kind of like the leaves of paper that the central bank prints and prints and prints and just floods the economy with fake dollars, with something that has no real value, something that isn't anchored to true value. And the Lord shows in this story that that isn't sufficient. That won't do for his people. Instead, a sacrifice has to be made. Something of value has to be paid in order to clothe Adam and Eve. An animal has to be killed. One that Adam named. Probably it was an individual that he even knew. And in killing this animal, God showed that the only money of value, the only currency, the the only thing of value that's worthy to pay for debts, particularly the debt of sin, is life. Life must be sacrificed to pay the debt of sin because the cost of sin is death. Now, Adam and Eve did not die immediately when they sinned. And this illustrates, in the financial context, the concept of debt. We normally call this grace. We, call, we, we say that God was gracious to Adam and Eve in allowing them not to die, because it was said that in the day that they eat of the fruit, they should surely die. But they didn't die that day, and that is the grace of God. Why didn't they die that day? Because God clothed them. Not directly because God clothed them, but in the 
sense that God clothed them, and to do that, he had to kill an animal. And in so doing, he gave an illustration for the coming of Christ and the sacrifice of Christ. It shows God's grace. And at the same time, Adam and Eve did not die that very day. But a day with the Lord is like a thousand years. And indeed, both Adam and Eve did die within a thousand years. So in a certain sense, they did die that day as a thousand years, but not that literal day as we know it. And so, in this way, the concept of grace was introduced, but this is also the concept of debt. Adam and Eve became indebted for their life. And if a payment were not made on that debt, they would have died that very day. If the animal had not been slain, their nakedness would not be covered. Their debt would not be covered. Therefore, Christ is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. He paid the debt for the sins of this world from Adam and Eve onward. Now, as we talk about financial systems, it's important to understand where the idea of debt comes from. You know that the fiat financial system is a system of debt. When you hold a paper dollar bill, that dollar bill doesn't actually hold value. It holds debt. And that debt is secured by the life of the citizens of the United States of America. That's what government debt is. That's what money in the fiat financial world is. It's debt. It's secured by the GDP, the gross domestic product of the nation. It's based, it's fiat money. It's based on the good faith of the U.S. government, which promises to repay that money based on the hard work of all of its citizens. It's a system of debt. Now, Jesus came to save us from the debt of sin. And to cast it in financial terms, we could say that he came to get us out of debt. Now, can you be out of debt if the money itself that you hold is based on debt? No, that's like clothing yourself with fig leaves. It just won't do. Why? Because those leaves become worthless very quickly. They dry up and crack and it doesn't work for clothing. It might work while they're green and flexible, soft, but they deteriorate very quickly. That reflects the fiat financial system. The dollar bills through inflation, they don't cover you for long. And that's because they're based on debt. True value is something that doesn't degrade with time. And Bitcoin, of course, is an example of that. Bitcoin doesn't lose its value because Bitcoin is not an inflationary currency. And that's what God shows here through the killing of the animal to clothe Adam and Eve. The skins of an animal, the leather with which Adam and Eve were clothed, was durable. It would last. It would stay supple and not get crusty and hard and break like the leaves. It was durable and it would last for a very long time. And so, in this way, animals became an expression of value. And particularly, it was the life that embodied that value. 
because the animal had to be killed in order for its skin to be used to make leather, to make clothing. So God is showing several things here. He's showing that money, to be valuable, must ultimately be based on life. And that's because the debt that should be paid by the money is death. The cost of sin is death. And that can only be paid by life. So for money to have value, it must be secured by life. And that is what ultimately went into the idea of the covenant that we talked about earlier, the covenant with Abraham, where the two pieces of the animal were separated and the parties to the covenant walked between them and promised with their own life that they would fulfill their obligations under the covenant. That all traces back to Adam and Eve, and particularly this moment when God clothed them. It cost the life of the animal. Now, from this time forward, animals were always regarded as a thing of value. They were used as money. In fact, this same illustration, this same contrast between the fig leaves and the leather skins is seen in the next generation when Cain and Abel, the first two sons of Adam and Eve, each went into a different line of work. Abel went into the work of tending the animals, whereas Cain went into the work of producing vegetables. Now, we all need to eat, right? Just as we need to be clothed. And by the way, God did something else besides clothing Adam and Eve. He also cursed the earth for their sake and sent them out of the garden so that leaves would not be for free anymore. They would have to cultivate, they would have to plow the earth and grow the plants, cause the earth, put their sweat, put their effort into making the earth produce its fruits. Prior to that, the earth produced abundantly on its own in the Garden of Eden, and the leaves with which they clothed themselves were therefore of so little value. They were abundant. God changed that. He cursed the earth so that it would take effort, work, in order to produce plants from the earth. That's comparable to proof of work, that money, clothing, food should not be available at no cost. It must take effort to produce value or money to secure the necessities of life. To put that in the context of today's financial system, money printing must be cursed. It must be put to a stop. It must cost something to print money. Without a cost, the debt can't be paid because we all know from real-life examples of nations that go into hyperinflation that when you print too much money, it just creates an endless cycle that spirals out of control. I think it was Warren Buffett who said that the U.S. would never default on its debt because it would simply just print more money to pay the debt. The problem is that money itself is debt, and therefore, once more money is printed to pay the debt, there is also more debt to be paid. And that's kind of like sin. Once you fall into sin, any kind of let's say, effort put towards paying that debt of sin, if it isn't rooted in 
faith in God, in his covenant, if it isn't rooted in the life of Jesus Christ, which alone can pay that debt, then all your efforts only dig the hole deeper, just like the government printing money to service its existing debt, which creates this endless spiral into hyperinflation. That has been kept in check to a degree because the world has kind of done this in a concerted way that allows the governments to funnel the money into channels of their own choosing, just like how they printed all that money ostensibly for COVID. But how much of that money actually reached individuals? Not much. It actually went through industry channels and basically enriched the pockets of the wealthy. That's that cycle I talked about earlier, the covetousness that is the love of money that is at the root of all evil. That served to further enslave the peoples of the nations because now their governments have that much more debt, which is ultimately secured by their own lives, by the lives of the citizens, by the hard work and time and effort and sweat of the brow of their citizens. The solution today is the same as it was in the time of Christ. It's to exit this world's systems and enter the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And that was also the context of that verse that says the root of all evil is the love of money. It was about being content with the basic necessities, with clothing and food, and not seeking to be wealthy in terms of this world, but rather seeking justice, godliness, the things of the kingdom of God. And that's what moving to the Bitcoin standard actually puts into practice. It encourages people, it incentivizes people to dispense with the unnecessary things of this life, the big houses, the big furniture, the cars and yachts, and all the things that wealthy people crave. Bitcoin encourages doing away with those things and instead investing in Bitcoin, which is a system of justice, financial justice. It's a system of godliness insofar as it incentivizes good behavior. And ultimately, it's a system that is grounded in life insofar as it is a store of value that you can invest your life efforts into without having them decay. It's a, in a certain sense, it's a form or an expression of the idea of eternal life. Because when you put your time and energy into any type of work that is rewarded by Bitcoin, that Bitcoin stands as an incorruptible monument to your life efforts. The value of Bitcoin is rooted in life. Now, I wanted to come back to the story of Abel and Cain because this again shows the distinction between the two financial systems. Clothing and food are both things that we need. And so Cain, working in the line of food, was doing a valuable work, as was Abel, who was working in the line of caring for the animals, for clothing. However, there was a difference. As a money, as a form of value, food does not keep well. 
It lasts a short time, and after that it expires. It rots. It loses its value. That's like fiat money. That's like money that devalues. And what that does is it encourages immediate spending. Food, as soon as you harvest it from the garden, you want to use it as quickly as you can while it's fresh and at its best. That's like dollars or any other fiat currency. You want to spend it as soon as possible while it still has its value because tomorrow it's probably going to be worth a little bit less and you won't be able to buy quite as much for it because you know inflation is going to reduce its value. It rots, so to speak, just like the food that's harvested from the garden if it isn't used promptly. And that makes it not so good as money. In contrast to that, Abel worked in the line of the animals, caring for the animals. As a monetary system, animals hold their value much longer. First of all, an animal can live a number of years. It can produce while it is alive. For example, sheep can produce wool, which can be used for clothing. Goats, cows can produce milk, which can be used for manufacturing soap, as well as for consumption and for cooking. It's an indirect way of satisfying some of the basic needs of life, but it shows that life has value in proportion to its duration, as well as value at the cost of death. In other words, animals can produce leather as well as meat for consumption, but those uses demand the life of the animal. So the point is, as a form of value, animals are far superior to vegetables. And this is proven by the fact that all through history, from the time of Adam and Eve to this very day, animals are used, livestock is used as a form of value. It's a money. It's a currency. In some societies to this very day, you can make purchases by paying a certain number of cows for the item in question. And Abraham, Isaac, they were wealthy. Jacob, they were all wealthy. And their wealth was counted in terms of the number of animals, the size of their herds, their livestock. This is a common thread in ancient times. It wasn't only gold that had an ancient use as money. In fact, the use of animals as money predates even gold, as we now see. It started even from the time of Adam and Eve. Now, this is important to understand because it also sheds light on one of the contentious aspects of Bitcoin, which is the fact that it is a deflationary currency. We have become so accustomed to inflation that many people are scared of what deflation could cause if the monetary system as a whole becomes deflationary. But here we have from the Bible an example of a deflationary currency, that is the currency of livestock. Why is livestock deflationary? Well, it's not like gold. Gold is actually slightly inflationary. And because of gold mining, gold actually inflates by about 2% per year. And that's why, generally speaking, it's assumed that the ideal rate of inflation for any economy 
is 2% per year. That's based on the inflation of gold, which, you know, gold was the monetary standard for a long time. And it was assumed that that's the perfect money, gold, and therefore any money should ideally aim for 2% inflation. That's where that comes from. But gold was not the original money. It was not the money that was created by God. God created, by contrast, a money based on life, the life of animals. And this money was deflationary. Why is it deflationary? Because life is the ultimate in scarcity. Each of us, since the fall of Adam and Eve, have a limited lifespan. And that limit to the length of our life places a hard cap on what we can offer to the world, at least in terms of time. And likewise, it is the hard cap of Bitcoin that makes it a deflationary currency. I played a clip in one of my episodes where Jack Mahler's actually compared the scarcity of Bitcoin to the limit of one's life. So it is not a stretch to say that Bitcoin is rooted in life. So there you can see the difference between the two financial systems in the story of Cain and Abel. And ultimately, this difference was demonstrated in the very lives of those two individuals. Cain lived out and demonstrated the fruits of his monetary system of vegetables. And those fruits lived out in his life were the fruits of violence that ultimately took the life of his brother. By contrast, the fruits of the monetary system of animals, as understood by Abel, produced in him a different effect, a different character, a character of sacrifice, of nonviolence, like the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Highly interesting how the nature of the money affects the nature of the individual. Perhaps it goes the other way. Perhaps the individual chooses the type of money because of his character. Whichever way you look at it, it's a self-perpetuating cycle that will ultimately lead to a difference, a visible difference, a separation between those who operate within a financial system that's grounded in life and those who operate in a financial system that's based on perishables. Very interesting. And now, you know, we talked earlier in this episode about the covenant and about how Christ fulfilled the covenant by giving his own life in atonement or in payment for the debt of sin. And now I want to talk to you about how Bitcoin has come today in a similar way as payment for our debt to the existing financial system, which is also a debt against our own lives as citizens of nations who are printing money without restraint. Bitcoin pays that debt. And in that way, it is comparable to Christ. In the same way that the money of Abel being animals foreshadowed Christ. Now, 
before we leave that topic entirely, it's important to also recognize the fact that this difference in the monetary system between Cain and Abel, this difference in how they counted their wealth, came to light in particular when it came time for them to offer a sacrifice to God. Now, we should ask, what is offering a sacrifice to God? It's an act of worship, yes, but why worship God? And in particular, why worship him through a sacrifice? Well, this goes back to what happened in the Garden of Eden when God clothed Adam and Eve, and it required a sacrifice. And so, offering a sacrifice in worship to God was a way of acknowledging God as the one who pays our debts, particularly our debt of sin. God paid that by making a sacrifice. God showed that he pays that, he promised to pay that, to redeem us from death, and he ratified that covenant with Adam and Eve through the sacrifice of an animal to clothe their bodies. Now, if you understand that, and if you worship God because of that, and you obey him out of faith in that covenant, like Abraham, like all the faithful through the ages, then you're in the camp with Abel. You understand true value. You understand what has worth, and that is life, particularly the life of Jesus Christ, who alone could pay the debt of our sin. That's the camp of Abel. Those who do not understand or do not accept that are in the camp of Cain. And although they may outwardly appear to be worshiping God by bringing a sacrifice to him, by apparently honoring his name, their sacrifice, like the sacrifice of Cain, falls short. It's not acceptable to God. It's deficient. It cannot pay. It shows that the perishable offering of vegetables being devoid of life, of blood, symbolizes an economy of debt in which there is no value ultimately paying the cost of the debt, just as there is no blood, no life actually sacrificed in the sacrifice of Cain. And therefore, he represents the fruits of the fiat financial system, which just pays debt with more debt. Very interesting, isn't it? But I really want to come to this point that Bitcoin as a financial system that aligns with Abel's understanding of value in the sight of God, that if you want to make a sacrifice to God, if you want to recognize him as your savior, then you need to make your sacrifice in the appropriate monetary system, in the monetary system that is rooted in true value in the sight of God and not in the monetary system that perishes. That is to say, when you set aside 10% of your income as tithe, as Christians are taught to do, not out of obligation to the law of Moses, but out of worship to God who promised to deliver them from not only the debt of sin, but also physical debt in this life. That can only be done by setting aside 10%, at least 10%, in Bitcoin, not in fiat terms. To worship God in fiat terms is to make an offering like Cain, 
one that is perishable, one whose value depreciates quickly, and one which cannot clothe a person. It cannot impart a good character. That's ultimately what clothing represents in the spiritual sense. It represents a covering of the shame of nakedness, of the shame of sin, the covering of the cost of one's mistakes. And the only thing that can cover that cost is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which is foreshadowed by a financial system rooted in the value of life. So I spoke early on in this podcast, in an early episode, about Christians urging them to set aside at least 10% of their income in Bitcoin. Just hold it. Hold it under your own keys as an offering to God, as a minimum. I would rather you go all in, but as a minimum, let your offering to God be an offering in a system of value that he approves of, that is rooted in the value of life, and that is in Bitcoin. The first transaction in the Genesis block or Genesis book in the chain of history was the sacrifice of an animal to clothe Adam and Eve. That is the financial system that God created. And it doesn't mean we transact in animals today, but it means that we choose to transact in Bitcoin, a system that preserves the value of life, that honors the value of life. It's the only thing that can get you out of debt and to make you a king. Kings are not in debt. The debtor is the slave. A king has his own financial resources and is sovereign over them. And the message of Jesus Christ today, the message of his second coming, is the message of his coming as a king, not as a baby, as a vulnerable one to be sacrificed, but as a king to rule in justice. As a Christian, the time of sacrifice, the time of the shame of the cross is over. It is time for us to rise as kings, to exercise judgment and justice in the world. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ will never lose its power, its potency. It will never lose its role in the life of the Christian. And today we see that in the way that we are called to sacrifice the things, the unnecessary luxuries of this world, of the physical life, to be satisfied just with our basic necessities being met and to invest the rest in the kingdom of God, in Bitcoin, to further his righteousness, his justice in this world, to bring the fiat system to account. Isn't this amazing how God teaches us through his word? This was a fascinating study, wasn't it? And I could go on to and talk to you about the first transaction, the first commercial transaction in Bitcoin, which was the famous pizza purchase. That was the first time that debt was actually settled with Bitcoin. There were transactions before that, non-commercial transactions. But the pizza has a special significance in light of the Bible and spiritual things as well. But let's save that for another time. It's enough just to make the point that God has a lot more to say about money and a lot more involvement in the monetary system than we have given him credit for. 
He is the inventor of money. He is the inventor of legal tender, of money that is adequate to pay debt. Now, keep in mind, you do not have to enter into debt in the first place. But if you enter into debt, legal tender is what a government declares as valid for satisfying any debt. We are not obliged to sin. But if we sin, the only decreed currency that can satisfy the debt of sin is the life, the blood of Jesus Christ. That is the fiat, the by decree money of the kingdom of God, which is based in good faith in his government, good faith in Jesus Christ. The only thing of value that is actually worthy of satisfying a debt. And in regards to monetary debt, Bitcoin is the system that aligns with what God has outlined from the beginning of sin as a monetary system of true value, rooted in life, able to cover the cost of debt. Amazing, amazing things. By giving us Bitcoin, God has delivered his covenant anew. He has renewed his promise to deliver us from the debt of sin and also to deliver us from the clutches of debt against our own lives in the fiat financial system. Will you act on that faith? Will you exhibit the faith of Abraham today by moving to the Bitcoin standard, by getting out of the fiat financial system of debt and entering into a system of true and just value that is in harmony with the principles of the kingdom of God? I hope so. Did you know that the Bible could be so relevant to what we are going through in the world right now? Amazing. I hope you enjoyed this message, and I wish you a blessed week. Bye-bye.